Welcome to the Heroic Minds Empower series, supported by the Empower Foundation. My goal with this series is to further understand and simplify the latest research on how the brain works, how it is affected by injury, sleep, nutrition, stress, and more. I want to find out what the latest research tells us about how we can recover, maintain, or enhance our neurological health. What does the latest research even mean? How can we apply this information to our own lives? Talking with clinicians, researchers, and those that have suffered from brain injuries, I plan to share these answers. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Empower series. On today's episode, we have Dr. Patrick Quaid talking all things vision training. So I get the chance to sit down with an optometrist that leads a ton of research, but is also treating patients, which is really cool. So he's on the academic side, the research side, but also in the field as a clinician. So Dr. Quaid was the, well, he opened uh, the Guelph Vision Therapy Center, the first of its kind in Canada to integrate occupational therapy, psychology, speech and language pathology, and vision therapy in a collaborative care effort. So that alone is basically the tip of the iceberg of, of where this episode goes. It's the idea that there are so many other factors affecting our vision and vice versa. One example from the episode, which you'll hear, is an individual that when he was on a balance board, his depth perception was fine. When he stepped off the balance board, his depth perception went a whack. And another interesting point that I'll get you excited about for this episode is that what we're actually looking at directly, what the object we're looking at is 6% of our field, our vision field. And 94% of that vision field is our peripheral that we're not even really focused on, yet can have a massive effect on how we feel, how we function, how we perform. We even get into the topic of mental health. What issues do we have that we may not even notice consciously that is purely due to an issue with our vision? Now, is it actually the eyes that are the problem? Probably not. But how is that issue with our sight causing us to be overstimulated? And we think it's purely emotional, yet it could be caused by a vision issue. And as always, these episodes are more than just for concussion or head injury. This is an episode that explains the importance of vision training and how it could be the missing piece, not only in life performance, but now competitive sport performance. If you have more questions after this episode, Dr. Quaid told me to put his email in the description of the episode, so feel free to send him an email. He has more slides, presentations that he'd be happy to send your way. Also, if you have any ideas for further episodes, other topics you want to discuss in regards to neurological well-being, concussion, head injury, send me an email. My email is also in the description of the episode. I want to keep this conversation going. I want to continue spreading the education on concussion, head injury, and neurological wellness. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast Empower Series. Enjoy the episode. For some reason, little Johnny struggles with reading and we don't know why, yeah. right? And what you find is one in 10 kids in Ontario has an IEP in place, and that was published in 2013. But about 80% of all IEPs are in place because the child struggles with reading. Mm-hmm. And these are the parents who take the kids to Oxford Learning Center and Kumon Learning Center and tutoring yeah. three times a week, and the poor kid's getting tortured. Um, but nobody looks at vision beyond just the basic eye exam. So they don't look at eye teaming skills, they don't look at depth perception, they don't look at convergence, tracking, all these skills. So what we did is we, we retrospectively looked at all the data in our clinic over the last eight years 
And for patients who completed therapy, we published the data. This is the data, well, we have it published in poster format. We're submitting it to a journal in the next month or two. But at the COVD conference in the States last month or two months ago, we presented this and the poster session was, was three hours and I was there for five hours answering questions because people were at the poster asking questions mm -hmm. about it. So this is a follow from the publication that we did in 2013 where we did actually publish this in a medical journal. Um, it was published in... Grafe's Clinical Archives of Ophthalmology, but if I pull the actual paper up, uh, here it is. What we showed in this, so Trefford Simpson is actually at the University of Waterloo. So we published this in 2013, and what we showed was if you take 50 kids between the ages of 6 and 16, and you break them into two groups, the first, one group is they're at or above grade level with reading, and the other group are they're below grade level, to the point where the school says it's a problem. Um, and we looked at about 15 visual skills in both groups and we recorded them with a visograph so that's a goggle that you put on there's four cameras inside the goggle and it actually records where your eyes are going on the page which is quite cool and if you if you scroll down and the only one of the main ta tables in the paper table one you know it looks complex but it's quite simple you got all the tests that we did the data from the IEP group and the data from the control group every single area was significantly reduced in the IEP group apart from astigmatism, which is just the curvature of the cornea, which most people have to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. So what they showed was children who struggle with reading, on average, have significantly reduced eye-teaming skills compared wow. to kids that don't struggle with reading. Yet the kicker was most kids in both groups could see 2020 on the eye chart. So the 2020 regular eye exam that you do is, is perfectly fine for the average person. I'm not saying everybody has to have this workup. Mm -hmm. But if you're a child who has a reading issue, and what we're talking about now with concussion, if you've had a concussion and you're not recovering, it's, it's becoming very, very obvious that these skills have to be assessed. Um, and, and, and the reason why they have to be assessed is, I mean, part of the paper that we published, we did something fancy called a regression analysis, but you basically look at, out of all the things that were reduced in the, in the group that struggled with reading versus the ones that d didn't struggle with reading, which factors were the most predictive? So it's great if you have like, okay, I've tested 15 things, and 14 out of 15 things were reduced in one group compared to the other, that's great, but which metrics are the most predictive of performance? And what we found was virgin's facility was number one, which is a fancy term for how quickly and easily can I move my eyes in and out without getting stuck, right? So if I'm reading, what do I have to do? I gotta pull my eyes in, point at a page, and I gotta move my eyes from side to side whilst my eyes are turned in. So that's actually a pretty complex eye movement, right? If, if we've existed as a species, relatively speaking, for 24 hours, how long have we been reading for? The answer is about 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. So were our eyes naturally designed to read? I'm not saying we shouldn't read, but were our eyes naturally designed to read? No. And you talk to most concussion patients, what do they complain of? I can't be on a computer screen. Scrolling on a computer screen is tough. I try to read. I lose my place a lot. I get to the end of a page, and I have no idea what I just read. So was it... it it makes me think that, and I never even really thought about this, but the idea of vision training is because me, like, uh, it makes me think of swimming, like a, a yeah. human swimming. Yeah. It, it, you know, we're not really meant to, but obviously we've done it and become good at it. Right. Is that similar in, in vision training? Is it a thing where, like you said, with the reading, yep. maybe we are or are not, whatever. It's still yep. difficult for the, for the eyes, as we know. Is that a, is that a, an app, is that something you would, you would say or consider that there is needed training in certain yeah, areas? Yeah, and, and I think you know you've got to look at people who are good. Like take re reading for example. What's different about kids that can read well versus kids that can't read well? Now it's not just the eyes. Obviously, we have to have phonics. We have to have I understand how sound and letters. There's other skills, but 
what we see, for example, in reading with these with this kids population is if a kid comes into the clinic and they struggle with reading, almost invariably they spell phonetically. So if you say to the child, spell future, they'll go F-U-C-H-R, spell station, S-T-A-S-H-O-N, because that's how it sounds. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and we're both in front of a microphone here, but if I say to you, um, spell the word Toronto for me, go ahead. T-O-R-O-N-T-O. -O -O. No, tricky, but try it going backward. Oh. Now, what's the, what's, but what's the first thing you try to do? You look up and you try to picture yeah, the word. It, so yeah. that's visual memory. Mm -hmm. So visual memory is one of the metrics that we track. There's actually standardized tests out there for the visual memory. You, you can put a percentile performance on a child. Are they 50th percentile of the average? Are they 10th percentile impaired? Are they 90th percentile? They're great. Mar Margin Culp and a, and a bunch of folks at Ohio State, I'm talking in the early 2000s, late 90s, they looked at a whole bunch of kids and they said, we want to look at how they perform in math and in reading and they looked at their visual memory scores and they found a huge correlation between the two. So they basically said, if I walk into a classroom of 25 kids and I measure visual memory on a standardized test and I don't measure anything else and I rank the kids from the best score to the worst score and then I say to the teacher, make a list of the kids who you think are the strongest to the weakest and you compare those two lists, they're almost identical. Wow. So, so even if so someone isn't a visual, because there's a, you know, you grow up thinking someone's a visual learner, uh, someone's an auditory. Ah, now that's that's a great conversation because picture the person, and and we all have variants of this, and one's not necessarily abnormal or normal, but some people can study and they listen to music, right? So auditory doesn't bother them while they're studying. Other people have to have complete silence. They say anybody makes noise, it drives me nuts, right? So what's different about the person who? noise bugs them when they study. Well, it's because they're an auditory learner. So if you have noise in the background, you're interfering with their strength, which means they're not a visual learner. Somebody who's a visual learner, whose visual memory is good, you can have noise in the background because they're using their visual system to learn. So they're, they're not bothered if there's noise. Actually, in fact, some people like to listen to music when they're studying, right? So why are there those two trends? So I, I think, you know, looking at how the person functions in their environment is important to figure out, okay, how are they processing information? Because the, the, the old saying in concussion is, if you've seen a concussion patient, you've seen a concussion patient, mm -hmm. right? right. And, and while we've never seen two cases that are identical, I would say there's definite trends. I mean, most of my concussion patients will be light sensitive. And I'm talking about post-concussion syndrome. So you've gone beyond that two or three months where you've had the hit. You're, you're beyond that, well, let's see what happens with time. And that's what we all see initially. And the funny part is that that advice has ranged from give it six months to a year to give it a month. And nobody seems to really know what the answer is on that. Mm -hmm. my, my, my personal opinion, I don't like to see the patient until at least a month post-injury. Because I want to give them time to kind of see if they bounce back. If they're not really bouncing back by two or three months, then you're starting to move into the post-concussion syndrome phase, where, yeah, the patient's bouncing back a little bit, but they're, you know, they were nine out of ten, they've dropped down to two out of ten, two out of ten, and they've maybe bounced back to four out of ten. So yeah. they got a bit better, but not, not where we want them to be, right? Before you continue, because it brought up another piece that I, uh, I was reading about uh, in your work, and it was that to do those tests right away yeah. is sometimes not a good idea because there's there's hormones and different things that yep. have changed due to the injury. So yep. let that subside and, and hopefully heal before you do all these tests and think yeah. there are bigger issues. And, and you also have to walk that line of how long is too long versus how short is too short. And that's why we say we at least want the patient to have had about a month to kind of rest and, and see where they're settling after about a month. I think anything, certainly anything, anything shorter than two weeks is, is, is almost a waste of time okay. uh, because the patient is so symptomatic, often they can't even get through the testing. They go home after the testing, they sleep for eight hours 
hours after the testing because it just wiped. Um, so we want to get to the point where the patient can actually do the testing. But we don't want to be waiting for six months where everybody's like, oh, just give it time, just give it time. And, you know, at what point do you stop saying that? Right. right. So you have to get proper baseline data because, again, just like the old saying, without data, you're just another opinion. I mean, you have to have data and you have to show if you are treating these patients, are you making them better? Now, the cynic might turn around and say, well, if there's no double blind placebo control trial, how do you know those patients weren't getting better by themselves? And, and the reality is we have a lot of evidence now starting to point to, given that vision occupies at least 40% of the human brain, I mean, we, we got, what, 1.2 million ganglion cells, which is a fancy name for connections, um, between the eye and the brain, and we have 30,000 ganglion cells per ear. So the anatomy is telling us vision is dominant. I mean, we, we just looked before we came on air, we looked at the McGurk effect, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where you see somebody saying, and if, if you have a chance to look at this online, look up the McGurk effect, M-C-G-U-R-K, and you'll see a person saying the word ba, and when you change what their, what their lips look like from ba to fa, even though you're only hearing ba all the time, you actually, what you hear is changed by what you see. So when you see the lips moving a certain way, even though the sound doesn't change, you hear it differently depending on how the lips move. So we know that when vision and auditory collide, the brain will go with the visual system because it's the bigger system, which makes sense. If I got two things that are disagreeing, I'm going to go with the more dominant sense. And you, the other point that was cool was what we talked about where a piece in the brain that actually moves with the auditory and... Yeah due to the visual and I wondered if you could touch on that because I thought <clears throat> you know I think the value of that is just showing the the connection and also how they work together and also showing the strength or dominance of one over the other so yeah, yeah. that's um, so I think it was in what year was it 2017 20 it was December 2017 or 2018 um, in P- PNAS is the journal, but what they found was there's a muscle behind the eardrum called the tensor tympani, which which controls which which direction uh, the eardrum moves, right? And what they showed was when the eyes move either left or right, that tensor tympani muscle contracts and moves the eardrum in the same direction as the eyes. Now, maybe I'm a nerd, but that's cool. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm looking yeah. at that going, okay, I spent four years doing a PhD, a year doing a postdoc. You, you saw my scary PhD thesis. And I lived in, in the world, and, and it, was really, it really was a luxury living in that world for four years. I had time to actually think about how the brain worked. I mean, I mean, now I'm in clinic, I'm seeing patients, I'm writing research papers, I'm presenting at conferences, and, and, I, and I've, I've got a family at home, so time is very much a premium right now. But I remember when I was a grad student, I could actually take the time to read these papers. And, and now what's fascinating is now I'm in the clinic and I'm seeing these patients, I'm actually going back, funnily enough, often to my own PhD thesis and going, oh, now that chapter makes a lot more sense because I'm seeing this in the patient and it correlates probably to this part of the brain. And, and as I said earlier, if, I, if people say, what was your PhD in? And I say it was in psychophysics, that sounds dead boring. But if I say it was in illusions, it sounds much more cool, right? And, and so I really studied on how the brain can get tricked by different visual types of illusions and, and what that reveals about the brain. Mm-hmm. Because, as, as you said, a huge proportion of the brain is visual machinery. It's not the only part. I actually think the two big players, the two, not the only players, but the two biggest players in concussion are the visual system and the neck and the back. Mm-hmm. If you can get both of those under control, you're going to get the vast majority of your concussion patients a lot better. And so before we dive into that, I think a, a good place to start would be, and it was also in your video as well, and it was cool to see... It's cool to see eye stuff and, and, and eye research when you can actually see the eyes doing yeah. something and they can say, look how it, it moves here. And, and one of the intriguing pieces on that was when you talked about the 2020 
having 20-20 vision, looking at an eye chart, and then mm -hmm. having to do basically any other task than that, and there's tons of issues. But if you yep. get 20-20 on the eye chart, people might think, oh, you're fine. Yep. So, yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions in in concussion, or in, in vision in general. If you stop the average person on the street and you say, what's your understanding of 20-20? They will say it's perfect eyesight, perfect vision, right? Um, if you ask people what actually what 2020 means, most people don't know. They just say, I know it's numbers and it means it's perfect and you know, I hear them advertise on the radio for laser surgery and it's 2020 or it's free and I really don't know what it means, right? Um, and it means I can see size 20 font at 20 feet. That's all it means. Now, if you have eight letters, which is, you know, the standard eye chart really hasn't changed since the 1800s. I mean, yeah, we've computerized it, made it look fancy. It's still the same eye chart. And, and what's funny is if you have eight letters separated by a very small distance, from side to side, and you're sitting 20 feet away, and you read the line, if you actually look at the person's eyes while they're reading the chart, you actually don't see the eyes move. Because it's such a small movement, it's, it's perceptually you can't see it with, with the naked eye. But if you watch somebody reading, for example, you can see the eyes going like a typewriter. So that, that seems like such a basic concept. But I think what even eye doctors forget is, yeah, if I'm reading an eye chart at 20 feet, I'm not testing eye movements. So if somebody gets 20-20, why do we then make the assumption that they automatically have all the other skills? Mm -hmm. it's, it's really kind of a nonsensical way of looking at the visual system. And I, I really think vision testing or testing of the visual system has to evolve. It has to evolve beyond, and I'm not saying this has to be done for everybody. If somebody's at grade level and they're thriving at school and they haven't had a head injury, then great, a routine eye exam is perfectly fine, perfectly appropriate. If, however, you've had an injury and you're not recovering or, and or you're struggling at school with reading, um, you need a much more in-depth assessment of the eye movements because if they're not working properly, it's going to wreak havoc because a, a, a very basic example is if you're listening to the podcast, just pick something in the room where you are right now and look at it and cover your left eye, right? So pick something, doesn't matter what it is, could be, could be my water bottle over there, right? So you've got your left hand over your left eye. Now take your right hand and point at the water bottle. So your right index finger right now is pointing at the water bottle. Now here's the trick. Don't move your pointy finger and don't move your head. Just take your hand and move it over to the other eye. To the other eye. Oh, uh, oh. the other eye. Yep. Where are you looking now? I'm like three, four inches off. Yeah. So are your eyes pointing at the same thing? No. Doesn't seem like it. No. So, so the brain, I mean, we, if you close one eye and close the other eye, it looks like we're seeing the same thing. But if you actually point at something and close one eye and then switch over to the other eye, your eye is pointing in completely a different place. So your brain, both eyes have to take an image, separate pictures that are complex. It's not just one picture. Like when I'm looking at you, there's, there's the background, the door, there's the whiteboard over there, there's, my, there's the mic. It's a very complicated scene. And I have to close one eye and close the other eye, and then the brain has to put both of those images together seamlessly, right? That requires a lot of brain processing. Mm -hmm. That's not just the retina. I mean, it's just like a camera. You know, I don't know if you ever remember the, the fun days of high school when they used to have, oh, here's the analogy between the eye and a camera. So a camera has a lens. So here's the picture, here's the lens, and here's the film. And then they say, here's the eyeball. Here's an image. Here's the lens in the eye, and here's the retina. So the eye's kind of like a camera. I always sit back and go, okay, what did you have to do to the film before you could see the picture? You had to develop the film. Well, the same thing in the eye. The image falls on the retina, but the eye doesn't do the scene. The brain does the scene because the image has to be sent back to the brain. And, and we all kind of take that for granted. But there's a huge amount of, of neural processing involved beyond just me looking at an eye chart. So, so I think when we, when we dumb down vision to just eight letters at 20 feet and we say that's all you need, it's, it's a huge disservice to our patients. Mm -hmm. In your presentations, you make it so clear that there are just so many other 
pieces or parts of a vision that you really don't understand or know about until you until someone makes it very clear because you think the eyes and we just, it's you know we're like as we said visual people maybe yeah. more of the time and and so until you actually look further into it and one example is the vestibular system like that first of all i wonder if you could explain what that is yeah. and and i think i've heard it before many times but it's still for some reason hasn't stuck with me i it's, haven't had it explained in a way that's like okay that's what it is it's a nebulous thing right yeah exactly yeah. so the vestibular system and the connection to vision and then that's when we can get into balance and peripheral and all that yeah. exciting stuff so um, i guess what is the vestibular system and the connection to the eyes so so vestibular is basically my it's the semicircular canals in your inner ear so when you move forwards and backwards, so when you accelerate and decelerate, that's something called the utricle and saccule. So there's, there's, there's mechanisms in the inner ear that tell your body that you're moving, right? If you move your head around, then that's when the semicircular canals, you've got three canals, your X, Y, and your Z axis, which, which tell your brain basically where your head is in space. So it's kind of like your internal positioning control. And, and when people talk about balance and dizziness and all that kind of stuff, everybody thinks it's always vestibular. But I've actually gotten, and, and I... I hang out with a lot of healthcare professionals other than optometrists, and the reason is I want to learn from them. I want to learn, okay, from your angle, what are you seeing, and does it fit with what I'm seeing? And from from an ENT, from an audiology standpoint, what I've learned from those folks is the vestibular system, the visual, and maybe it's because I'm Irish, I'm simple, I, I like to keep things simple, I like the model. I always work off a model. So if you think of a stool that has three legs, so you've got a three-legged stool, if you take away one of the legs, the stool falls, right? Each leg, each three, one of the three legs, the first leg is your visual system, the second leg is your vestibular system, and the third leg is your proprioception. So your proprioception is my feet are touching the ground, I'm physically grounded in space, plus the proprioceptor is in your neck, because if I move my head around, my neck muscles tell me where my head is, right? Mm -hmm. So for me not to get dizzy or nauseous or off balance, those three systems have to be saying the same thing at the same time. If they don't agree, then the brain gets confused and says, where the heck am I in space? I'm feeling, so what is dizziness and nausea? Dizziness and nausea is your body's way of forcing you to slow down so you don't fall. And I think you right? said there was a percentage, right? It only had to be 2% difference. Yeah, I actually, so the VOR, so you're talking about the VOR gain. So VOR stands for vestibular ocular reflex. So if I'm looking at something and my head is completely still and I'm only moving my eyeballs around, there's no vestibular involvement. That's purely my visual system. As soon as I move my head, as soon as head motion becomes involved, vestibular is involved, right? So we rarely, in life, sit perfectly still and only move our eyeballs because first of all it looks kind of creepy right <laughs> so we just don't do that um, most of the time we're moving our head and we're moving our eyes together so the brain has to take the vestibular signal and the visual signal of your eye movements and put them together and those two systems are glued together by something called the VOR reflex so the vestibular ocular reflex um, and VOR integration has to be there's only a two percent margin of error in that system so if those two signals are off by more than two percent you will have symptoms of dizziness, feeling off balance. So it's a pretty fine-tuned system. Now the problem is, um, everybody always assumes, if a patient comes into me and says, hey, I'm getting dizziness and I feel nausea, everybody jumps on the vestibular bandwagon. They all say, oh, it's vestibular. And what I've learned over the years, and this is not just from optometry, this is also from people who are dealing with the vestibular system a lot of the time, they will say, actually, we can only prove vestibular involvement in less than 5% of cases of dizziness. Now, vertigo is different. If I get spinning, that's vestibular, 100%, almost 100% of the time. Um, 
However, if a patient comes in and says, no, no, I'm not getting spinning, because honestly, if they had vertigo, they probably wouldn't be in your clinic. They'd be at home in bed staring at the ceiling because you can't get out of bed. It, like ver Vertigo is debilitating. So if, if they say, no, I get dizzy if I go into certain areas and I just feel off balance, most of the time, 95% plus of the time, those cases have normal vestibular findings. And what people don't realize is, from a developmental standpoint, and again, maybe I'm just a nerd, but this is cool, the vestibular system is fully formed at 48 days gestation in the womb. So you're not even two months old as, an, as a fetus, and the vestibular system is almost fully completed. It's enclosed by the petrous bone, which is the hardest bone in the body. The reason is because the, the na nature basically says if you, if you leak any fluid out of the system, you're in trouble because the whole world's going to be spinning. So, so it really protects the organ. So whereas the visual system is not fully formed at birth, it's actually you don't develop convergence and depth perception until four months post-birth. So if you look at those two systems, you go, okay, one's formed at 48 days gestation and is really well protected, and the other one doesn't form until four months post-birth, which makes sense because vision occupies more brain neural machinery, therefore it should take longer to come online. Mm -hmm. I find it really interesting that we have 1.2 million neural connections per optic nerve going to the brain, and we have 30,000 connections going from each ear to the brain. So that's like me looking at my TV saying, there's a really big, thick cable coming into the in coming into my TV, and there's a smaller cable coming into my TV, and now my TV's not working properly, I know I'm only going to look at the small cable. That doesn't make any sense. Now, right. it might be a problem with the small cable, but I should be paying a lot of attention to, to, to the big cable. And, and the problem is right now, we're looking at vision in a very basic manner. And, and it's, it's really, and, and because everybody sees 2020 and it looks like they're fine, then people say, well, there's nothing wrong with the big cable, so we're going to blame it on the small cable. Right, right. So what you'll often find is a lot of patients do in, in concussion rehab, we come across a lot of patients where vestibular rehabilitation, because uh, you, you can talk about vision rehabilitation and vestibular rehabilitation. So you got VT, your vision, re vision therapy, and your VRT is your vestibular rehabilitation therapy. And we'll have, a, and, and don't get me wrong, a lot of patients get, do, do VRT and do get better. Um, so the literature is very solid. If somebody has a vestibular problem and VRT is done on them, they will get better. However, we come across, and maybe we live in a bubble because we see the patients who are not getting better. We see a lot of patients that come into our clinic, and they've been doing 3, 6, 9, 12 months of VRT, and not only are they not getting better, some of them are getting worse. Mm -hmm. And what we see in those patients is they often have very significant neck issues and very significant issues with their eye teaming that have not been addressed. So I actually think... VRT tends to be the go-to therapy. Like if you look at PTs and chiros, it's, it's one of the main interventions that they do. The problem is it's not going to be very successful if the visual system and the neck and the back is not addressed, right? right? right. And, and Richard Gans, who's arguably one of the world experts in vestibular dysfunction, we've actually asked him, how many sessions should you do before you see a significant improvement in VRT? His answer was four to six sessions. So, so once or twice a week, four to six sessions. If the patient's not significantly better at four to six sessions, you're missing something, stop doing the VRT. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't see that. We see patients coming in doing three, six, nine months of VRT, not getting mm -hmm. better. And if they're, if they're migrainers especially, so if you have a patient who's, we know from the literature, um, patients who tend to have poor results in post-concussion tend to be more female and migrainers. We're, we're, now, there's discussion about whether it's a neck, is there a hormone involvement? We, we just we don't, don't know. know part, we yeah. don't know that part. But what we're seeing in the clinic is a lot of the patients who are not getting better seem to be mi mi migrainers for sure. And, and the theory is in migraine, they, without getting into a dark hole on this, um, migrainers have what's called an abnormal velocity storage mechanism. 
So what that means in English is, you know, when you run on a, on, a, on, a, on a treadmill and then you get off the treadmill and you feel like you're moving for a couple of seconds and then it dissipates, for migrainers, that's minutes. So it goes on for quite a while. So there's something different about their vestibular system. So if you get somebody who's a migrainer who also has an eye teaming issue that hasn't been addressed, VRT will likely not only not work on that patient, it may actually make them worse. Right, right. So there are situations where you got to be careful and say, okay, we need to have a proper assessment. Um, my, my saying that I say in all my lectures is you have to have proper diagnosis before proper prognosis. If you're not properly assessing these patients, are you really surprised when they're going off the rails and not getting better, mm-hmm. right? So to me, the vision, the neck and the back, and, and the vestibular systems are the three, the three uh, legs of the stool that you have to manage. And one of the interesting examples from that was, and I saw the video, was an individual standing on a balance board. I yeah. found that, I wish I could see what he was seeing to experience yeah. that almost instant. And the video was instant, he was on the That was the, the kid who, board. so yeah, just to give context to that, that's that's a really interesting video. And, and again, this is one of these things that you don't learn this stuff in optometry school. And as soon as you talk, start talking about balance boards, every, you get most optometrists who go, you know, that sounds weird and hokey. You're putting people on balance boards. And I'm like, well, think about what you're doing on a balance board. What are you engaging on a balance board that you're not engaging when you're not on a balance board? You're engaging vestibular because you have to use that system to maintain your balance. You're also engaging core muscles because you you have to, if you don't really work on maintaining your posture, you're going to fall off the balance board. So what you're doing when you put somebody on a balance board, you're engaging two of the legs of the three-legged stool. You're, you're increasing their input, right? So the case that you're talking about was it was a kid that we treated in VT. And his vision therapy went great. I mean, his eye tracking got better, his reading level went up, his near-far tracking got better, his headaches went down. And the only thing that was weird was his, his what, what we call random dot depth perception. You know those magic eye books where you mm-hmm. look in the magic eye book and some people see them and some people don't? Um, we want all of our patients seeing that by the end of therapy. They should be able to get that level of depth perception to a very high level. We got all of his other visual skills perfect, and I mean perfect. And he just, he never saw death perception. We couldn't work out why. And then one day in therapy, one of the therapists was working with him on an exercise and she just pulled out one of the death perception um, cards that he was never able to get. And when he's on, when he's on the balance board, he's seeing it. And she's like, well, that's weird. Dr. Quaid said you didn't have any death perception. So then he went back into therapy and I thought the therapist was like, yeah, you're crazy, right? So put him on the balance board, give him the uh, butterfly. It's called, it's, it's called the Titmus fly is the name of the actual test. He stands on the balance board. He can see he can see depth. I'm like, you're kidding me. And he steps off the balance board. He's like, yeah, it just faded right back into the page. And I was sitting there going, I, I got to record this because no one's going to believe me when I show this. So, mm-hmm. so then I went back to my three-legged stool analogy and I said, okay, maybe I'm overemphasizing or I, I live in a bubble where I only ever see things from the vision perspective. But even if vision is perfect and vestibular is perfect, if the gross motor is not perfect, so if I don't have good good core muscle strength, good, um, you know, if, if that angle's not online, maybe that's what's going on here. Because when he steps on the balance board, his depth perception came out. When he stepped is off the more, balance board, it sank back into the page. Is that proprioception? Proprioception, yeah. So, so what was interesting is I just did some basic balance testing on him because obviously I'd refer him out to a PT or an OT to work on that. But I asked him just to stand on one leg. His balance was terrible. Like his general core muscle, like it was terrible. So I'm sitting there going, that's, that's the problem. So we have him now in PT, and I'm going to see what happens when he comes back from PT to say what happens. So so that's where these professions need to talk to each other to say, okay, it's not just vision. It's not just vestibular. It's not just proprioception. It's how all three integrate. We don't walk around as humans as a pair of eyeballs floating around in the world or as a vestibular system floating. You know, the brain has to put all that stuff together. How do we perceive our world as a cohesive environment? Yet we have visual input. We have 
hearing input, we have proprioception input, we have smell input, we have t we have taste input. Like this, we live in this cohesive world that seems um, not discombobulated. It, it, it seems cohesive to us, right? Yet if I do a very simple thing right now and I just put my finger up in front of you and, and I look at my finger, I actually, if I really pay attention, I see one finger, but I actually see two of you in the background. <laughs> if I look at you, I see one of you, but I see two kind of see-through fi fingers here. Now, I know you can't see this on the podcast, but I'm going to do something weird with my eyes here. I'm going to look at my finger, and if I got two of you right now, Ben, if I take away the finger, I'm going to see if I can keep you doubled. So now my eyes are crossed, right? Now, I'm going to decide to make you go further apart. So now you're really far apart. Now your shoulders touch. Now your ears touch. Make you double. Now I'm going to look at your left image, and I'm only going to move the left image. Now you should see my, my right eye going in, my left eye straight. Yeah. I'm going to bring it back, hold it, look at the other image, and now I'm going to make the other eye move, right? Right? So that's not just a party trick. I'm controlling my periphery to make my eyes move the way I want them to move. So, I mean, I, I did about two years of VT as a kid because I was, I was in a car accident with my dad when I was eight. And I was knocked out of commission for two and a half years. I had a speech impediment, saw a double. So when I'd read up close, I would, I would turn my head off to one side because I'd use my nose to block one eye and I'd hold the print over here because if I didn't do that, if I read straight ahead, I'd have one image and another image superimposed but kind of rotated. Mm -hmm. So when I looked at a page, I didn't see a page of text. I saw jumbled letters all over the page and I'm trying to make out. Now the kicker was prior to age eight, I was pretty much a straight A student. I was doing well, had the car accident. Um, so if you picture this, my dad was in the military, my mom was a nurse, and, and what was really funny is um, back in the early 80s, you know, seatbelts in the back of seats in Ireland were not a priority. So my dad's driving, gets cut, cut off by a truck, ends up going into a ditch, and I'm sitting in the back seat between the two seats. I'm standing, actually, because I'm still small enough that I can stand in the back of a Mini. If you imagine a blue Mini, mm -hmm. you know, he's got three kids wow. in the back, so my dad was kind of brave. And we used to always, we always went on vacations to France and stuff, and it, we weren't well off by any means, but he would throw the trailer on the back of the Mini, throw the three kids in the back, and away we'd go, and we used to have a ball. And, but the funny part is, so this, this car hits the ditch. My dad's got a belt on, so he's fine. Uh, I end up going right through, through the windshield. So I, I end up afterwards... I felt okay, but then within two or three days, I started noticing my vision started going funny. I started developing a speech impediment, so I had to stammer the whole way through school for three years. Like, I literally, I think for six months, I just stopped talking because when I would talk, I would get mid-sentence, and I would just, it was almost like I felt lock-jawed, right? Mm -hmm. um, the speech stuff got addressed quickly because people could hear it. They said, oh, there's a problem. I've got to get that addressed. I went to see probably about nine optometrists, and they all said my vision was fine. Why? Because one eye at a time, I could see 20-20. And they didn't even look up close. They, they didn't look, how's his convergence, how's his tracking. Right. Eventually came across a 10th optometrist, which my dad pulled some strings and got me assessed by a doc in the military who was used to dealing with traumatic brain injuries. And that's when he figured out, ah, I think your kid's seeing double. So I ended up getting referred to an optometrist who did VT, a very, very basic form of VT back then. I mean, now we have the CITT study, which was published in 2008, which was a randomized control trial and did show that vision therapy is highly effective for that kind of condition. But it, it, it took that doc about six months to get me to not see double. Right? And then oh. after that, I, everything kind of, and I still wasn't perfect, but I was good enough that I could function at school, do okay. And then I thought, hey, this is cool. I want to be an optometrist. This is awesome. Mm -hmm. So then I, I went and did my undergrad, went and did optometry in the UK, and then I came over here to, to do my PhD. But I was bitterly disappointed after my optometry in the UK because I, I thought I was going to learn all this vision rehabilitation stuff in optometry school, and it turned out not. They just, they taught us how to prescribe glasses. They taught us how to detect 
eye disease, and yet we can protect, we, we can prescribe meds like antibiotics and steroids, and that's all great. So now we're doctors, yay! But nothing was taught about rehab. So that's why I, I, I worked in the hospital eye care system in the UK for two year, two three years after I graduated to pay off my student loans, uh, and then I came over here to do my PhD. But I specifically chased a PhD in in brain function because I wanted to figure this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said to you earlier, my, my wife kind of makes fun of me and says, you know, why did you do a PhD and a postdoc to, to go back into clinic? Aren't you, don't you want to be an academic? And I'm like, no, honestly, I wanted to learn how to think for myself and how to design studies. So I'm, I'm kind of in my nirvana right now. I, that may change over time. I, I may go back into the ranks of the academics. But right now, I've kind of got my own living lab where I can, I can treat patients, I can tweak the protocol, I can publish the data. We're actually getting grants now as a clinic. Um, so, so it's kind of cool. We're able to tweak the process and see what, what, what effect it has on, on the rehab. And, and when you look in the literature and people say, oh, I think we're doing a pretty good job with concussion, I challenge that. Um, we have a three times higher rate of suicide in these populations. And, and that was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in, I believe, 2015. But the most tragic stat of that was not only is there a three times higher rate of suicide in the post-concussion syndrome population, 50% of the people who do it who actually go through with it, um, there's a documented visit to their family physician within the last week of life. Mm-hmm. So they're not sitting in a corner not looking for help. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're going out there saying, I have these symptoms. Um, the amount of patients I've come across who are um, assessments from insurance companies, for example. You know, these patients will land in my chair and they'll say, well, you know, I've been to see the neurologist, been to see the neuro-ophthalmologist, they did an MRI, everything looks clear, I have two eyeballs and they move, therefore I'm fine. And, I, and I'll say, yeah, your eyes are healthy. Like if I look at your retina, I look at the back of your eye, everything looks good, and your MRI might be clear, but you clearly have functional deficits in your visual system. And I've had, I've had grown men cry. I've had a, this is one of the most weirdest experiences as a doc. I've got a guy who's a crane operator on a construction site. He's probably in his mid-40s, birdie guy, big guy. And once I went through all my findings, did my ocular motor assessment, said, yeah, you're, you know, your convergence is pooched, your tracking is pooched. Uh, you know, your saccadic eye movements are in the fifth percentile for your age group. Um, he starts crying in my chair. And I, I thought I've hit a nerve. And he's like, no, you've, I, I, I've been, he's four years post-injury, right? He's got three kids. Um, he's used to providing for his family. And he's pr- proud of that fact, as most guys are. And, and, and he is at the point where he hasn't been able to work for four years to the point where he's been to over 20 specialists. And every time he goes to an assessment, his wife went with him for the first 15 appointments. Last five hasn't gone with him because now she's starting to doubt him. She's starting to say, well, I don't think you're injured. And he's like, I wish I could walk around with a caster on my head so people can see I'm injured. Because mm-hmm. what's the worst thing that you can say to a concussion patient? You're fine. You, you, know, you look fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look fine. And then the patient will sit there and go, I, but I'm, I, I might look like I'm the cam duck on the surface of the pond, but underneath I'm pedaling like crazy just to keep up. Mm-hmm. And, and I can relate to that. Even when I had that injury as an eight-year-old, thankfully I didn't have it when I was older, but when I was eight, I remember going, like my parents saying, well, you, you have to go back to school. You have to start re-engaging. And I remember the first week back at school, I thought, I, I felt like I was sitting in the middle of the 401 with just cars whizzing. I couldn't keep up with anything. Like the trying to copy stuff from the board. Simple thing like I'm trying to write something from the board to the page while the, te- the teacher's talking, I'm done. After an hour, I was so fatigued. So when these patients are living in that um, that world of chronic fatigue, and, and what really kind of spoke to me, and I, 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 I even get upset now even thinking about what he said, the guy basically said, because I, I have a six-year-old at home. She's going to be seven in August. 
and you know when you're a parent like your kids are your world right he said I would come home from from uh, from work having to try to work with the brain injury and he eventually went on a long-term leave after six months but he said in the beginning I would come home and I'm, I'm so out of gas I just want to go upstairs and sleep I didn't even get time to spend with my kids and if my kids came to me I didn't want to be around them because my fuse was so short because I was dealing with this stuff all day long and wow. and this has real impacts on people and to go on onto you know the next side of things or another another side to this this multi-sided you know discussion is the idea of the neck yeah. and that also leads to, to blood pressure like I think that connection was was really intriguing for me and then I think we can also touch on the the cell phone part too that I yeah. see with my yeah, 100%. With my friends or, or, or people that have reached out to yep. me in regards to to um, concussion rehab so I think the first thing is the neck positioning, how that relates to sleep, all that stuff I thought was, was so intriguing. And really, we don't even think of neck position. Like, you, you're not, it's not a conscious awareness. So you think, why do I have this headache or why am I not sleeping? And to hear that connection to the neck was, was pretty intriguing. And I think that's, that's been a journey for me too, because when I was treating, when I started, because our, our clinic originally started, and we got two clinics, one's, one's in Guelph, one's in North York. But when we started treating these cases, we started off as a mostly a rehabilitation center for children with learning issues, specifically with reading. And we were, we were busy, we had a lot of referrals, and we started to realize that a lot of these pediatric cases, so there's really only, in, in my opinion, two main causes of eye teaming problems, and I'll, I'll bring the neck back into this in a second. The first cause is not concussion, but usually those patients will exhibit uh, very specific case history. So they'll either be preemie earlier than three weeks, so their birth history shows that they were born early, three weeks or more. Their birth weight was five pounds, five ounces or less, or they had any sort of supplementary oxygen at birth, like they'd cord wrapped around neck, like there was, there was birth complications, right? Um, and, and, you know, Dr. Maples has published papers on this in, in, in various journals, and he did a retrospective analysis on 5,500 people with eye-teaming issues that weren't concussion and clearly identified several developmental risk factors. Then we started to realize a lot of these kids were showing binocular vision deficits or eye-teaming deficits, yet they didn't have those risk factors. So we're thinking, okay, what's going on with those kids? Then we take a more detailed case history with the parents, and almost invariably what came out was a pediatric concussion history. So the parents would say, oh yeah, when he was three, he fell down the stairs. Or when he was two, I was opening the garage door and the kid held onto the door, went up about three feet, he fell and knocked his head off the concrete. Does that count? Like, yes, it does count. That's, that's a concussion to a kid, right? And what we started to notice in a lot of these cases was neck was playing a role because these kids would make way more restricted head movements during VT. So that's when I kind of went, okay, so we started dealing with more and more older patients over time. We started getting referrals from concussion sources because they're like, well, we don't know what to do with these patients. They're having eye issues, but their regular eye exams are showing they're fine. Can you have a look at them? So that's kind of how we got into that area. Um, and, and eventually, now our clinic is probably 75% concussion, 25% PEDS, right? right? So it's, it's really just exploded because we're, we're trying to figure this stuff out. And as we're doing it, we're, we're, we're clearly doing something right because people keep sending us patients. I don't know what you're doing with the patients, but they're getting better. Um, and we're trying to track the data and publish and make sure we stay ahead of that because you always want to stay grounded in science. Um, but what we started to notice with these patients was neck was playing a huge factor. And I've, I've had the, the fortune to work with a number of people who are just fantastic with neck function. I mean, some are, some are physios, some are chiros. We've got one guy in Burlington who's an MD who does a lot of neck and back work. So I, I've kind of tried to get information from them in terms of how can I learn from what you're... I, I, 
obviously don't do what they do. I'm not a neck person, I'm an eye person, but I want to figure out what are you doing with the neck and what impact does it have on the visual system? And what we started, what we've basically started to conclude after, I'm talking after years of debate and, and you know, heated debate, because I'll often say, I think it's this, and they'll say, oh, and that's all healthy debate. I mean, to, in mm. every healthcare profession, we all need to sit back and admit that we all have a bias. I'm biased towards the visual system. The neck person is, is biased towards the neck. The vestibular person thinks everything's vestibular. And, and we all have to kind of step out of that area and say, okay, we need to look at the big picture. And what we've, what we've figured out for sure is patients with neck issues that are not properly addressed move much slower in vision therapy. They don't progress as quickly. Um, so my general preference is I want that neck addressed before I start VT. So it's not all about VT. V VT is a significant portion of rehab and it should not be ignored 100%. But we often get patients who we assess and we go, you're not ready to do VT yet. You need to have the neck dealt with. Because if you don't do the neck first, you're going to be spinning your wheels in, in VT. And our goal is to get you independent of us, not dependent on us. Our goal is to get you rehabbed. And what we found was... The conclusion I've basically come to is the sternoclastoid muscle is playing a huge role in these patients. That's that big muscle that goes from about your ear uh, downwards and kind of slightly forward if you were to kind of look at the front of your chin and kind of go down here. So that muscle, when you have a whiplash injury, if you actually look at a video of, and I've actually got a video. It's which, saw the car. Uh, yeah, the car. I mean, how can, you, how can you imagine the neck is not involved? You get such a whiplash. It's, it's a very violent movement of the head. And, and this may sound kind of gross, but they're at, at the University of Guelph, they have one of the best human anatomy labs in the country, in my opinion. Um, and I, I'm fortunate to be invited there every year to lecture as a guest lecturer. And as a, as a thank you, they usually give me a tour of the human anatomy lab and I get to see people who've donated their bodies to science, right? This is a really, really cool lab. And I was having a very bizarre conversation with a graduate student. And, and if you picture this, this is a really bizarre conversation. He's sitting in the human anatomy lab and he literally has a human head on his lap, right? Because he's doing the labeling, he's, he's looking at the trigeminal nerve and all this stuff. It's all being done very respectfully. And, um, and it was just, a, I'm, I'm trying to have a conversation with this guy, but he's holding a human head and it's, it's kind of hard to have a conversation. So he turns around to me and he says, um, have you ever felt the weight of a human head? Because he, he listened to my lecture for two hours and I, and I always said, you know, the human head, the weight on the neck is, is such a significant weight that we don't think about it. And if you, if you lean your head forward, so the average pressure of the head on the neck is about 10 to 12 pounds if you hold your head straight. If you go forward by about 15 degrees, it's 27 pounds. If you go forward by 30 degrees, it's 40 pounds. If you go forward by 45 degrees, it's 49 pounds. And if you go forward by 60 degrees, it's 60 pounds. So even just think about all these people on their cell phones all the time, right? Well, what are they doing to their neck? So, so anyway, going back to the conversation, I'm, I'm talking to him, so he literally lets me hold the human head. And honest to goodness, it felt like a bowling ball. Wow. It was the weight of a bowling ball. And this is, this is you know, so I'm looking going, okay, so that head is attached to my body. The only thing connecting the two is my neck. If I get an acceleration, deceleration type of injury, there's a huge velocity difference between the body and the head. And the only thing keeping those two things attached is the neck. So you're getting huge shearing effects on the neck. So it, when you overstretch a muscle, what, how does it tend to respond? It tends to contract, right? And a lot of these patients will complain of... Um, Vision, obviously, they'll they'll say, yeah, the front and, and the front and the side is really a problem, and I feel like, and they always describe it as a pressure around their eyes. They always describe it that way, but a lot of them will say, yeah, and, and you know, just just here and here just feels terrible. The back of my neck just feels like it's it's just a bag of hammers. It just never feels comfortable. And I wake up in the morning and it's all stiff. And and what I realized is, the the most important thing to the vision people is getting the eye movements and the eye teaming 
properly dealt with. The most important, the holy grail for the neck is how can I get the neck muscles to relax and to stay relaxed. So sure, I can go for massage, I can go for adjustments, I can go see my car, all that stuff will help, but a lot of patients will say three or four days later, it feels great for a day or two, and then three or four days later, everything tenses right back up again. So the holy grail for those folks is how do we get those muscles to relax and stay relaxed? And the other thing I've figured out is it's not just about the neck muscles, because again, if I, if I move my eyes slightly to the right, I don't move my head, but if I move my eyes a lot to the right, what do I tend to do? I tend to turn my head. So actually, there is a connection between the neck muscles and the visual system because the more I move my eyes, the more I'm inclined to move my head because I don't want to move my eyes too extremely, right? So they're absolutely connected. So what you often see is if somebody has restrictions in neck function, they actually depend more on their vision because now they have to move their eyes out more because they can't move the neck. That's even interesting on a performance side. Huge. When you're, as a, I mean, I would, at any position, but I would think as a hockey player, as a centerman, and the puck goes across the ice and you don't want to, so now yep. you're, Obviously, your neck's involved in, in the sport because things are so fast, but that's just intriguing on, on if those things are even a yep. couple percent off, are you going to be able to perform at the same level? At the same level. And I don't even mean from a safety standpoint because that's obviously a, a, another different conversation, but even from a performance side, is huge. How efficiently am I moving and looking peripherally and, yep. and not having any restrictions that I might not even consciously be aware of? Yeah. And I think we touched on that. There was a publication that we talked about where um, you know they did VT on one group of football players and they did no VT on the other group and they showed that the incidence or the rates of concussions was far less in, mm-hmm. the, in the group that they treated. So again, yeah. you can poke holes in the study and say, yeah, you know, staffing was changed or whatever was changed, but the study itself was very well designed. So you look at it and you say, okay, even on an average group of football players, if we improve the visual skills of one group versus the other, you see a much lower rate of injury in that group because not all hits occur from behind. A lot of them occur from the front. And if I see it coming earlier, I know to get out of the way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, maybe I'm, my background being being from Ireland, obviously, we, were, we weren't big into ice hockey in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So I think in Ireland is more rugby. It would be Gaelic football. But I was actually big into basketball, um, and I, I played on the high school team. And I was actually start starting five for the point. I was a point guard starting five for the whole way through high school, and we won the national championships twice. Cool. So actually, I played at I, not as high a level as you played, but I, but I played at a decent level where I appreciated the sport. Mm-hmm. And certainly now the Raptors are playing; everybody's into basketball. But yeah. but I think what's interesting, if you go back to the days of Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, like the the real golden days of the NBA, what was what was Magic Johnson known for? When he would dribble down the basketball court, he would look in one direction and he'd pass somewhere else. And he would and he would get it bang on to the person to, to the point where his colleague was sitting underneath the net going, How'd I get here? Mm-hmm. Right? Cool. And and he was known for that. Now what was interesting is, um, what's he using? He's using peripheral vision. Right? What we don't realize is if you were actually to map out how much visual space you process and how much of that visual space centrally is used for detail on the eye chart, it's about six percent of your visual field. So 94% of your vision is not for clarity in the center. It's all that stuff. So if I'm looking straight ahead right now and you're in my periphery, I can tell you're nodding your head and you're blinking even though you're blurry, right? Mm. So that peripheral system is geared for motion detection. So you go to the Wayne Gretzky's, all those things of, you know, it's not about where the puck is, it's about where it's going to be. So, you know, that puck is moving way too quickly to follow that with your fovea. There's no way you can follow that with your central vision all the time. But if you keep, it, it, it's like when there's a fly buzzing in the room and you try to follow the fly and you can't, but what, but then you look straight ahead and you use your periphery, yeah, now I see him. So your, your periphery is much more sensitive. Like, nature's not dumb. Why would nature give you 40% of your brain at least for vision 
and then say, okay, I'm only going to give you 6% of your central visual field for the eye chart, and I'm going to give you 94% out here, and it's blurry. Ha ha. No, the reason why it's blurry is because you have to sacrifice clarity to increase motion detection. Right, right. So, right. and it makes sense if so. If you're mathematically inclined, um, if 94% of my visual field is for periphery and it's blurred, and 40% of my brain at least is visual machinery, 94% of 40% is about 38%. So more than a third of your entire brain is for vision that has nothing to do with the eye chart. That's a significant statement, yeah. right? You sit oh, there and yeah. you go, so why aren't we trying to figure out what all that other brain machinery is used for? And how does it integrate with all the other systems, right? So from, from a neck standpoint, I think, I think the neck plays a huge role because it enables, it enables me to move my head more, which actually puts less demand on my visual system, right? So having those two systems working at their optimal and then factoring in vestibular on top of that, I think trying to put all that together is, is kind of the, the holy grail of, of brain function is where does my brain integrate all of these things to the point where I see the world as cohesive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's got to be in the brainstem. It's got to be the cerebellum, the balance center where all those things are put together. But it's, it's, it's really fascinating to me when people say, oh, your, your PhD was in illusions. Honestly, this may mess with your head a little bit, but I think we live in a visual illusion all the time. Because again, I'm looking at you and I don't realize the microphone down there is double. But if I really look at you and I really pay attention, yeah, it's double and blurry, but I'm not consciously aware of that. Why? Because the brain says, that's not important. I'm going to process it at a subconscious level to the point where you're not aware of it. But I also have to be aware of where that microphone is relative to me while I'm speaking to you. Otherwise, I'm going to hit it or I'm going to hit it with my hand or something, right? right? So right. so that peripheral, it's, it's almost like a cruise control system that's always in the background that's really really important but we're not aware of and i think in brain injury we we lose that cruise control yeah and i think the the one point that you know talking about anxiety and depression in in concussion the one point you made with the periphery is because it's 94 percent of what we're seeing if if even a piece of that is is affected or or because of the concussion you pointed out an individual that entered a room and it was the lines on the room or oh, they weren't yeah. even looking at the, around at the points that were actually causing them issues, but they were taking it in. It was stimulating them through their peripheral. Yep. It was, they entered a room and it was an instant anxiety attack. So that to uh, me is so, so powerful. I learned, I learned a harsh lesson um, when I started dealing with concussion patients in the clinic. I used to love wearing shirts and ties and I, I kind of took pride in looking good, right? Now you'll see I'm, I'm like, I'm Johnny Cash. I'm, I'm black from head to toe. I don't have anything patterned. Because the first day I walked into clinic and I'm dealing with a post-concussion patient, I had a black and white tie that was striped. And the patient said, no offense, Dr. Quaid, I can't look at that tie. And I thought, I, I got kind of offended. Like, what's wrong with my tie? And he's like, no, when you move in the periphery, that, that high contrast pattern, uh, and there is actually a test out there. It's called the, the, it's a fancy name. It's called the BDT test or the bihemispheric dissonance test. But if you look at this test, it's literally a grating. It's a black and white grating. And it's high contrast black and white lines. And you just show this. It, most concussion patients, if they're post-concussion syndrome and, they have a, and they're light sensitive and they come in wearing sunglasses and a baseball hat, if I show them this and I put the screen up to maximum intensity, they look at that and go, oh, that's going to make, I feel nauseous even staring at that, mm-hmm. right? So, and if you take that and you put it in the periphery, so you get the patient to look at you and then hold that grating off to the side and just shake it a little bit, they, they'll go, you got to stop doing that. I'm, I'm just going to puke. Right, so they're they're viscerally sensitive to high contrast patterns, um, and and it seems like it's a certain spatial frequency. So if you make the lines really broad, they're not as sensitive. If they go too fine, they're not. There seems to be a range where they're really sensitive to, and 
yet when you talk to them, you say, okay, how do you feel when you go into a grocery store or a mall? They'll say, oh, if there's a lot of peripheral motion, I just get really symptomatic. And, and they don't say, even, and they wouldn't even, like, that they, would be someone that truly understands it. They would that, just say, oh my God, but I'm they so don't, Yeah, they don't connect it to their visual system. And then they'll say, I'll say, and, and we actually call it the Costco effect. You know, how do you feel when you go to Costco? Oh, I get in there for five minutes, I just want to get the hell out of there. And it's because what's happening is we used our, our peripheral visual system. Yeah, yes, there might be noise stimulation in that angle too, but we use our peripheral system almost like a visual form of sonar. So I'm, I don't have, to, if I'm walking and there's a stool over here in my periphery, I don't have to look at that stool to know where it is. I just, I know where it is in my periphery and as I'm walking, it moves relative to me and I know not to bump into it. Now imagine it's not a stool, it's a person and now it's 50 people in my periphery and they're all moving in different directions. That's a huge um, neurological load on my peripheral system. Now if my visual system can handle it, that's great. If it can't, I think what happens, and this is where you start getting a lot of debate, but to me it just makes so much sense. If that peripheral motion system is our threat detection system, so you and I are in a jungle 3,000 years ago and a saber-toothed tiger jumps out of the jungle, which one of us lives? It's, it's not the person who says, oh, hold on, there's movement, let me, let me look at what's there to figure out what it is. Oh, I think it's a tiger. If, you, if you're smart, you see movement and stripes and you're gone, mm-hmm. right? So you evolve, I don't, I get eaten, I'm lunch, right? Mm-hmm. So that peripheral visual system is not just sensitive to motion, it's our threat detection system. So if that system goes offline, or has damage or, or is not working the way it should, it means I'm constantly second guessing my periphery. What does that do in terms of my fight or flight reflex? I'm, I'm stuck in anxiety mode. A lot of these patients are, are chronically um, stuck in sympathetic tone. Like if, if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, I just, I feel on edge all the time. I'm just, I'm antsy all the time. I go into a grocery store or a mall. I actually had one patient who actually went into, it went into a full blown panic attack. And I told his wife, I said, do not take, it was coming up to Christmas, and I said, whatever, because he came in for the initial assessment, and I said, whatever you do, do not take this guy to malls. Right, Christmas is coming up, and the wife's like, yep, I totally get it, totally get it. What did she do? Ended up taking him to a mall over Christmas. He went into a full-blown panic attack in the mall to the point where he literally just shut down. They had to call EMS to come and take him out of the mall. Wow. So I'm sitting there going, so you're telling me vision doesn't have an impact on how I respond to my environment and and a lot of people will listen to that and go ah that sounds a bit much I'm like I see it every day in my clinic and and what's interesting is um, not just sunglasses but there's certain wavelengths certain tints that can help these patients now we definitely need a lot more research on this but if you look at the um, the number of of photoreceptors on the back of the eye that process color right because this is another illusion color doesn't exist our brain creates it based on wavelengths. So you look, I look at your top, it's red, I'm looking over there, it's blue. Those colors don't actually, our, our brain takes the wavelength and interprets it that way. So people who are colorblind, which is another misnomer, colorblindness doesn't exist, they just see in different hues than we do. So they might actually see hues that we'll, we'll never see. That'll, that'll mess with your head. Mm-hmm. Um, but but when, you're, you know, when, when, you're, when you're dealing with post-concussion patients, often if you give them a blue tint, they love it. They'll say, oh, that periphery is so much easier to deal with. And we just, honestly, in the beginning, we were just throwing poop on the wall to see what stuck. And that's what I love about the clinic. We, we can kind of experiment with stuff. And what we found was, you know, we would give patients a range of tints and say, which one do you prefer? And that's kind of subjective, which doesn't sit well with me. But what I found is a lot of them were picking the shorter wavelengths. They were picking mostly blues. 
And I was like, okay, yeah, this is interesting. So then I go into the... Um, That's why you have this massive blue wall yeah, here. Yeah, most of our clinics have blue walls because when the patient comes in, they just they just tone right down. So what's interesting is I started to look in the anatomy because I said, I'm, maybe it's the PhD me. I, I, I don't like just accepting something without understanding why. So I started to look into um, the distribution of color receptors on the retina. So we've got about 127 million light-sensitive cells on the retina, and that feeds into the 1.2 million connections to the brain. But if you look at the photoreceptors that process color, or wavelength technically is a more correct way to say it, um, the ratio of red to green to blue is eight to four to one. So for every 13 receptors on the retina that process color, only one is blue. So if I have a brain injury and I take a blue tint and I put it over top, what have I just done? I've simplified the signal. The brain's no longer getting confused. Also. Um, blue always looks kind of blurry to us. If you ever, at Christmas time, when you look at Christmas lights, you know, the green always looks sharp and the red, the blue always looks kind of blurry, right? So we can never, the eye can never properly focus in on blue. So if I can't properly focus in on blue, I'm not going to use my central system because my central system's for detail. It's going to actually help integrate the peripheral that's system. that's clarity piece. That yeah. To yeah. So, so a lot of these patients will say, boy, these, these blue tints are a godsend. Now, I don't want people looking like Elton John for the rest of their life. Our goal is to treat the system to get rid of the light sensitivity and bring all that stuff down. But these are the things that we've discovered in clinic that we would never discover in an academic se se setting because you don't have the freedom to do that to do that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Now, you always inform the patient of what you're doing and say, hey, this is experimental. I don't know if it's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, and and you don't want to be getting into a situation where you're trying stuff without any proof. But these patients, I mean, if the alternative is saying, have a nice life with your light sensitivity for the rest of your life, and, and never mind the incidence of three times higher rates of suicide, I don't think that's a good answer either. It's very similar to Hutch said in our initial episode, Dr. Mike Hutchison from the University of Toronto. Yeah. We actually, published, are, yeah, we actually published with him. And he yeah. told me, he said, make sure you say hi. He, but he had said something very similar on a different piece of this puzzle, this concussion puzzle, is that, okay, we have two options here. We we get on the treadmill and we try yeah. to push through it and we actually realize, oh, we're building up this capacity now and it's get, things are getting yeah. better, or we don't give it a shot and we don't try and push through right. it. And, and he was saying the literature now shows that even having those symptoms, pushing through those symptoms after, you know, when it is now post-concussion, yeah. it's not in that two-month yeah. yeah. uh, area. He said that literature shows that you're not actually doing any more damage. And right. so um, it, that's interesting. And I think another point you wanted to, to chat about which I think is important is that the literature from McMaster that was done yeah. I like locally um, for I don't know for those that are listening locally but um, at the University of McMaster on the importance or now the growing realization of the importance it's, I don't think it's quite where it needs to be as you no. can probably attest to but yeah. I think in the literature it was cool to, to hear that vision is now becoming to me it becomes a, a potential answer which I yeah. think can give people hope which is the entire goal of this entire yep. meeting today this entire podcast is to give people that little bit of hope that they need or another idea oh I can try this like that gentleman that was tearing up in your yeah and your it's that that power I think it's so powerful um, but yeah if you wanted to touch on that go yeah I think that. I think you know it, it's it, it was it was reassuring to see and so it was published in brain injury in 2015 and it was written by uh, neuropsychology psychiatry and is that McMaster so the nice thing is this did not come from an from an eye care source Right, mm -hmm. and I'm reading through this paper, and it's it's really it's a it's a neat paper. It was um, current uh, guidelines or best practice gu gu guidelines for managing uh, persistently symptomatic concussion patients. So I thought, okay, I'll have a look through this, and they assigned a level of evidence to each area. So they said A is like a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. B is still pr a lot of evidence. We, we certainly should be doing it. Be nice to have a controlled trial, but we have more than enough to say it's worth doing. Um, C was clinical case studies, which are still of use. 
And I think D was like, yeah, this is bunk, right? And when you go through the whole paper, under section 10.10, which is under the heading of, so they literally went through a whole bunch of interventions, not just vision. They looked at neck and back and vestibular. And it was really a useful document. And you get to section 10.10 under persistent visual dysfunction. Uh, let me see if I can pull up the paper and actually make sure I'm getting the exact wording here because it was it was pretty interesting to see. Um, but what they, what, what they basically said was patients with persistent visual dysfunction basically need to have not just a regular eye exam, but they need to have their visual skills looked at in a lot more detail. So, so the exact wording, and they assigned level evidence B to it, which was, which was impressive. So under the topic of persistent visual dysfunction, they said other functional vision changes should be given consideration for referral to a qualified optometrist specializing in neurooptometric rehabilitation for vision therapy level evidence B. Here's the funny part. Specialties don't exist formally in optometry yet. So you look in, 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 I mean, yes, you have the FCOD qualification, so I'm board certified and fellowship trained in the U.S. in this. I've done a Ph.D. in this. But technically speaking, from a, from a, a, a regulatory board standpoint, an optometrist is an optometrist is an optometrist, right? And, and that's the way it currently is, and we have to respect the way the legislation is written. The problem with that is the public then doesn't know the difference. They have no idea whether Dr. A and Dr. B have the same training or not, or, or does one know to refer to the other. So I know that the, the regulatory board is looking into that right now. That That is something they're aware of. It's on their radar, and that's great. Um, you know, in in the States, um, the FCOVD is recognized formally as board certification. It's the same thing. It's, the same, it's actually been independently um, looked at by the same body that oversees medicine for fellowship training. So so in that way, the States is kind of ahead of us. Now, mind you, they have 23 optometry schools. We have two optometry schools in Canada, so they also have a lot more population, et cetera. So, so it's nice to see that coming forward, but but I think the, the fact that you have another profession other than optometry saying, you folks need to specialize in this because there's such a need for this, I, I think is great to see. And I think that's kind of catalyzed a little bit our profession to say, okay, we need to st- step up to this. The other... Um, book chapter that we published with uh, Dr. Singman. So I'll give a, a shout out to Dr. Singman at Johns Hopkins. So he's he's an, M- so I'm, I'm an optometry PhD, he's an MD PhD. So we're kind of y- yin and yang. Um, he's the head of neuro-ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins. So he's, he's also a wonderfully humble guy. Like he'll be the guy in jeans and a t-shirt who's no ego whatsoever, which is great. Um, and and he's, last year he was asked by Elselvia Science, which is one of the biggest publishers in the academic ranks. They wanted to put together a, a book for healthcare professionals, basically a a Bible for con- for managing a concussion patient, right? Which is a great idea to get everybody on the same page. And they, I think the book is like 32 chapters. It's neuro, the title of the book is Neurosensory Disorders in Mild Traumatic Brain Injury. D- d- full disclosure, I'm not making a penny on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my seven, Eric, Eric was asked as chief of neuro-ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins, so he's probably the world expert in brain injury as it pertains to the visual system. Um, he was asked to write the book chapter. So he picks up the phone and calls me and says, would you like to write this together? And I kind of answer him like, what do you need me for? You're an MDP. He's like, oh no, I, I can deal with the acute care stuff. I can deal with the imaging and the subdural bleeds. And if the patient need, needs a surgery, I'm the expert on all that stuff. But he's like, I don't really, I'm not the expert on the rehabilitation side. That's more you. So I was kind of, A, I was humbled that he called me and asked me to do that because he, he was under no obligation to do that. And B, the fact that we ended up publishing, so it just went into print in January, and him and I have co-authored that book chapter. And, and it's great because it's it's like a consensus statement from both optometry and, and neuro-ophthalmology that we're actually on the same page. Because what I find in Ontario is I'm often doing an assessment on a patient who's been told three, four, five times by ophthalmology and neuro-ophthalmology that they don't have a vision problem. Now, the problem is, 
that neuro-ophthalmologist or ophthalmologist in Ontario hasn't done anything wrong. They've, they've looked at the back of the eye. They've looked to see if there's any disease in the eye. And in that respect, yeah, they're right. The eye is healthy. But the brain-eye connection is not. The, eye's not, the brain is not able to properly control the eyes. And if they're not doing eye movement testing, they're not picking up the problem, right? So then these patients are incorrectly told there's nothing wrong with them. And then, you know, the spouse, the, the spouse starts to doubt if you're injured and the insurance company starts to think you're making it up. And, you know, we've actually, um, one ironic case that I actually dealt with a couple of weeks, and he, he'd be perfectly fine me talking about it because obviously I, I don't name names because they're patients. But this guy's occupation for 20 years was working for an insurance. Like, you couldn't make this stuff up. He, his occupation for 20 years, he was an investigator for insurance companies. So his job was to follow people around to see if they were lying about their claims. Mm-hmm. Did that for 20 years, right? The irony, he ends up having a brain injury. He's in a car accident, so he presents to me as a patient. He's gone through three or four assessments, been told there's nothing wrong with him. He sits in the chair. We get through 20 minutes of the assessment. His I-teaming system's a mess, right? So I go through everything with him. This is what we can do about it. This is what we, So I, I give him the whole spiel. And, and he almost starts crying in my chair, and he goes, I feel absolutely terrible right now. I'm like, why? He goes, I spent 20 years following patients around who were saying they were injured, and I thought they weren't. And I said, I would send in the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, so if, if the patient looked impaired, I'd send that into the insurance company. If they didn't look impaired, I'd send it into the insurance company. And so what was interesting, all that ever came back from the insurance company was the video showing that they weren't impaired. So he said, I feel terrible because now it's like a lot of these patients were probably genuinely injured and because they weren't walking around with a cast around their head, I, I, I actually thought they were faking it. And he's like, a lot of them wore sunglasses and wore baseball hats. Now I understand why they're doing that because I'm light sensitive all the time and the baseball hat on the top stops any motion in my superior gaze. And he said, probably a lot of these people that I thought were faking it actually weren't. And, and in my clinic, and again, I'm not saying people don't fake it. Uh, in Ireland in the 90s, there was a huge spate of, of reports of people jumping out from behind parked cars, throwing themselves onto hood of cars for claims. So I'm, I'm sure there's people out there that do that. There's absolutely people out there that, that do that. But when I see a patient who's three, four, five, six years post-injury, has lost their job, um, has the insurance company doubting them, had to remortgage their house to pay for their rehab, uh, who does that voluntarily? Who, who does that faking it? Doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And, and the three times higher rate of suicide tells us these patients aren't making this stuff up. So we need to get beyond that. So the nice thing about the chapter from um, from Dr. Singman and that brain injury publication that you're talking about is, you know, the, the that joint, that textbook is quickly becoming um, the most commonly cited source of evidence for brain injury in the States right now. And if you know anything about medical legal law, I mean, the litigious nature in the States is very different to the litigious nature here. Um, And it's being quoted a lot now. So it's nice to see that people are saying, yeah, it doesn't matter if the MRI is clear. It doesn't matter if the patient doesn't have a cast around their head. There can still be a significant impairment that prevents that person from engaging in work. And and you always got to be careful that that pendulum doesn't go too far the other way where you're giving people... Uh, a green card not to try, yeah. right? I mean, people have to try. You got to want to get better. Mm-hmm. But I think it's nice to see that the literature is starting to catch up with the reality. And and this is kind of confirming my own bias too. And I say this as a PhD. I respect science a thousand percent. But the reality is, the academics don't make the changes. The clinicians do. The clinicians are observing things in the clinic, and they figure out one day they figure out, oh, that's weird. That worked. I wonder why. Now, the problem is most of the clinicians are not academics, so they never follow through and do, and do the research, so the researchers never find out, right? If you can bridge that gap, so I think what, what happens in the real world is the clinicians work out what happens first, and then for, what's that, that saying by Arthur Schopenhauer? There's three stages to truth. The first is ridiculed, the secondly is violently opposed, and the third it becomes accepted as being obvious. 
So there's three stages to truth, right? And I think vision therapy is starting to move into the third stage. But I think for a long time, like pre the CITT study in 2008, um, a lot of people thought vision therapy was, was just bunk. It was nonsense. Um, yet here I am, knowing that it worked for me when I was eight or nine years old and got me stop seeing, it got rid of my double vision in six months. Yeah. So I'm it's sitting going... It's almost a healthy curiosity. Into, yeah. You know, I do have 20-20, but that's only 6% of the of the puzzle if you really yeah. think about it. Right? What about the other 94%? And I think that's where, you know, publications like this coming out of um, pub- being published in Brain Injury from McMaster and, and the book chapter from myself and Singman, I mean, that, that book chapter has over... 220 peer-reviewed references to PubMed. So we're saying this is not just our opinion. Every statement we make, if you know anything about research, you you, you can't just put your opinion down. Mm-hmm. You have to say a sentence and then have three numbers beside it that reference three papers that back up what you're saying. Now, you have to make sure you reference the right stuff. Um, but when you have the head of Johns Hopkins Neuro-Ophthalmology, MD, PhD, and an optometry PhD getting on the same page, putting it in a medical textbook with 220-odd references from PubMed, I'm pretty sure we have evidence that we should be looking at this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, to the credit of optometry, we are starting to look at it. And, and this is the one cool thing that I really love about this. This really is an area that optometry can own. Because, you know, an orthopedic surgeon doesn't do physiotherapy. So the physios are in charge of the rehab. The orthopedic might prescribe the rehab and say it's necessary, but the orthopedist doesn't really understand what goes on in the rehab, nor do they need to. Um, and I think optometry has always struggled to define what it is because, you know, yeah, you go to see your eye doctor. They, I always, cha- I kind of gently challenge optometrists and I say, what do you do that's uniquely optometric? They say, well, you know, we prescribe glasses. I'm like, well, opticians dispense glasses. Well, we prescribe medications for the eye. Your GP can do that. The ophthalmologist can do that. So keep going. Tell me exactly what is unique to optometry. And they'll say, well, we can fit contact lenses. Well, opticians can do that. So you get to the point where it becomes routine eye exams, which there's nothing wrong with. But technically speaking, a family doctor, an MD, an ophthalmologist can do a routine eye exam. So so I often challenge, and and, I I do it in a very respectful way because I don't want to get anybody upset. But I always say, I'm going to challenge you to think what is unique about optometry. And I actually think vision rehabilitation could be very unique to optometry because it's the area that, quite frankly, we are we are so well equipped to deal with because we're very well trained on the use of lenses and prisms, and and those are things that have been entrenched in our profession for decades. Vision therapy has actually been around since like the thir- 30s and the 40s, so it's it, it's not new. It's just becoming new now because the research is starting to catch up with it. So I, I think I think it's really vital that optometry looks at this as this could be an area that's really that we can claim as optometrists. And, and do it well. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I think that's uh, that's like a million different topics that we can <laughs> pick and, and pull. And but I yeah I can't thank you enough. This is phenomenal. I like I will have to do it again. Hundred yes. percent. I'll have to do it again and <clears throat> continue on with all this stuff you're figuring out and, and making it so applicable and black and white. Ironically, um, yeah. but it's been. This has been amazing. This is so much information, and I can't wait to share it. So thanks a lot for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds Empower Series episode. Like I said initially, send Dr. Quaid an email if you have further questions. Send me an email if you have ideas, constructive criticisms. I'd love to keep the conversation going. And also remember to check out empower.ca for more information on concussion and sport, optimism, hope, education, all the above. So check out empower.ca for more of that. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast Empower Series. We'll talk again soon.